episode 424, Robert Greene, The Laws of Human Nature in a Pandemic. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast. Hi, I'm Adam Lewis Walker, founder of Awaken Your Alpha, the number one personal leadership podcast that is also a best-selling book, Awaken Your Alpha, Thousand Tactics to Thrive, and also a TEDx talk for how to rise up. You can see a theme here, but please do check these out. If you like the talk, if you like the podcast, you will love the book. The book is the best of the best, and it's available on Amazon. This podcast is brought to you by The Talk Accelerator, helping thought leaders increase influence, income, and impact by achieving their talk. How to secure and smash your own TEDx talk. If you'd like to find out more about how you can get onto the red spot, please do head over to talkaccelerator.com. That's talk, X-C-E-L-E-R-A-T-O-R.com. Get to the podcast. How are you, Robert? I'm fine. How are you, Adam? Yeah, it's good to see you. It's been uh, it's been five years. I, just, I re-listened to the interview just to make sure. Has it really been that long? Yes, I, I couldn't believe it myself. Congrats on the new book as well. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I don't know if you, I got sent you a copy of my one. It yes, seems- I have. I've, I've read it. It's very good. I, I see my fingerprints on there, which is good. You know, I, I have no problem with that. So then you have the 10 laws of power. But very impressive, Adam. Good job. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, that, that means a lot. I'm, I'm going to be completely open. I, I'm more nervous. I was nervous, not about the interview, but honestly, in, in getting your feedback, I was almost reluctant to ask because obviously... No, you know, I, I know you'd be straight with me. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's very, very good. You have a mix of like nice stories and anecdotes and the quotes. And it's not just you kind of mix popular culture with things from from, you know, like Dostoevsky quotes and stuff. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. So I, it took way longer than I thought. <laughs> so that yeah, was, yeah, no, when we good start- writing. Very good. Oh, wow. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Blimey. Yeah. <laughs> it was painful <laughs> overall in getting it out and you know oh, uh, yeah. the fact that in our first interview, I think you said your first book was out when you was about 38, 39, something like that. Well, I started writing it when I was 35, 36. No, wait, uh, 37 really. So it came out, yeah, when I was 39. You're right. Very good. Yeah, and this well, my first book came out when I was just turned 39. So I, I, th- well, I felt good go. about that. <laughs> Not that I was it's trying good. to copy you or anything. It's I didn't good. plan it to be like that. Yeah, um, well, now you've got five more books to write. Well, I, I actually wrote, yeah, like a 10-year ten, ten plan, like five books. It's already more like a 12. I like the mix of, of past and present that you brought in. I was very impressed. I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed it. It was, it was a good, it was entertaining. That's what you I was know, and, and, I, and I actually learned it provoked some interesting thoughts for me, so. It's a great book, and, and you're only going to be going up. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast. Live limitless. Right, this week on Awaken Your Alpha, we have one of my favorite, well, I'm, I'm definitely biased. I'd probably say my favorite interview of all time on the podcast. We've got Robert Green coming back on the show, and he's, if you haven't heard of him before, you must have been living under a rock, number one, but he's the best-selling author of six bestsellers now. And this is an update to the 2015 interview, which will be tagged and linked to the show that you can hear all about. The 48 Laws of Power is probably his best known book. He's got books on mastery, the strategies of war, and his most recent book, The Laws of Human Nature, was six years in the making. 
He had a stroke around the launch of the book. So there's been lots of adversity. It's out. It's awesome. Robert, are you ready to awaken your alpha again today? I'm very much ready for it, Adam. My pleasure. This is very exciting for me. <laughs> me too. I was going to say, what have you been up to for the last five years? But you were just <laughs> diving into the writing phase of this latest book when we last spoke. What has been the biggest challenge, the adversity for you in getting this book out, both in the writing and in your personal life as well? Well, um, it was, I had a lot of ambition for this book. I, I kind of wanted, it's sort of the thing of, let's say I die tomorrow. I want this book to be out there to kind of summarize all of my thinking and my experience so that if I am gone, there, I leave this kind of legacy. So I put a lot of pressure on myself, I must say. And I sort of saw it as the culmination of all my experience prior to writing books, all the hardships I went through with looking for my, trying to find my path, path in life and my life's task. And then the writing of the books and then all, you know, all the research and all the consulting work I've done since then and all my experiences dealing with powerful people, et cetera. I kind of wanted to cook that all down into something kind of get, really help people deal with other humans. Cause one of the things that I've noticed in my experiences and in my consulting work is that most of us can be very good at, at other aspects of life, the technical things. But when it comes to people, when it comes to understanding people's psychology and how to deal with them and how to understand them on a deep level, so that we can work with them in some way or get them to work for us, that we're mostly really bad at it. We're kind of operating blindly. So my goal was to really, really help people, to give them like a kind of a dictionary or a roadmap. This is what deep inside motivates human behavior. You're never gonna understand people 100%. People are mysteries, they're enigmas. I'll never really know who Adam Lewis Walker is exactly, but through some knowledge, through what I've tried to uncover in the book, I can have a better idea of what might be going on in your mind right now. And when you do anything in life operating with knowledge and intelligence, you're gonna have better results. We've all noticed that. So I'm sorry, I've got a kitten in my office, so she just jumped up. <laughs> Absolutely, no worries. Um, so uh, the, I put a lot of pressure on myself. You know, I wanted this book to be a statement to really help people. And as you noticed, it's kind of a long book, and I apologize for that. So um, it meant a lot to me. But it, it was like it was like a really important child that I had to give out birth to, you know? Yeah. Because it was the culmination of everything I've learned in life. And so the writing of it was difficult. It was painful because whenever I write a book, I try and get at the reality of the situation. I'm not just sort of chipping away at the surfaces or the appearances or the cliches or the stereotypes about people. I want to dig deep inside. I want to really understand what's going on inside people's minds. So I had to think very deeply. I had to rewrite constantly. So the book was very emotional for me, Adam, because it meant so much because I put so much pressure on myself. Yeah. And then it came out. And, you know, as you said, um, Two months after I finished writing it, basically two or three months after I wrote it, I had a very close brush with death. I came this close to dying. So you add all that on, that book will, was, is like etched deep into my nervous system, you know? So yeah. it was a very 
powerful experience for me. Do you think, was there any coincidence in terms of like six years and like you say, you're pouring everything into there. What quotes from your first interview me, with me that you, you know, you said you work like a dog and you're, like, you're so passionate, like that release. And do you feel like you almost pushed yourself too hard or was it just random this stroke? Did you feel looking back that it was coming or you know, talk to us about that situation? Cause I, I know obviously you had a stroke. I read things, but I don't know the details exactly. Well, it's a combination. There's probably for sure an element of stress involved that provoked it. And there would be days, particularly near the end of the writing where I'd finish my work. And I was so deeply exhausted that I thought, God, I may not wake up in the morning. But I've had that previously with other books as well. So it was certainly that played a part in it. But also there was also some randomness. I was walking in a park near where I, <clears throat> excuse me, near where I live. And a a wasp, a hornet, stung me right here in my neck. And about a week later, my whole chest area got massively inflamed. It was so painful. I went to the doctor and they prescribed me prednisone, which is a kind of cortisone to make the itching go down. But it has an effect of raising your blood pressure. And I already had high blood pressure. And I also had some cholesterol issues. And so only a few days after I was on that prednisone and it made it go down, I had my stroke. And the stroke was a blood clot in my neck. And it occurred exactly where the bee sting was or the wasp sting was and where all the inflammation occurred. So if that silly little bee hadn't been there in that day when I was walking, I probably wouldn't have had a stroke, but maybe eventually I would have anyway because there were some conditions, some factors that, that were already there that made me prone to having one. But um, it's sort of a combination of a little bit of coincidence and probably too much pressure and stress that I was putting myself under. Your 18th law of human nature, death denial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was gonna say that for the end of the show, but it seems quite relevant. How did that affect your approach to that law, having it right in your face? You've thought about this, you've just been writing about that kind of aspect towards the end of the book. What are your thoughts around that, having to really face your own mortality in, in many ways? It's kind of ironic. It's as if the gods were trying to play a trick or joke on me or something. Because literally three months after I wrote about death as the last chapter, I had the experience. I tried to say in that chapter that we generally we denied our own mortality. We, we, I know it seems irrational, but we do think of ourselves as, as immortal. We never really quite confront the idea that someday could be tomorrow. It's going to end. And we have an idea about death. We know it, obviously, since we were very young. But it remains an idea, an abstraction. It's something that happens to other people. We don't have a sense of viscerally that it's going to happen to me. So you right now, you know that you're alive. You feel your heart beating. You feel your blood circulating. You feel you know, your full body, your skin, etc. It's very visceral. You feel it. Well, death is also there as well. It's something that you could feel if you wanted to feel it. There's something visceral about it. You could feel it in, in your cells dying, in your aging process. When you're about to fall asleep, you're hitting that sort of moment where you're kind of losing consciousness and you fall into a, a you know, sleep or a dream. That's a little bit of a taste of the loss of consciousness that you are gonna have one point. You know, you've had about it like that, <laughs> especially uh, when you're really tired, when you can't, you can't yeah. fight it. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then other times, maybe when you were younger, you have little intimations of it in your body. You know, I, I used to have them all the time. I don't know what they are, where they came from. But anyway, it's a visceral feeling. And I talk in there about in Zen Buddhism, samurai warriors who would go to battle with sword fights in which it was life or death. You either won or you were killed with the sword. And they would meditate, um, Buddha, you know, Zen practicing meditation. And they would meditate on their death, on their mortality, and they would feel it right there in the hara, in the belly, what in Japanese is called the hara. Um, and they would literally meditate on it in a very physical way. This is how it feels like to die. And they would, in this meditation, they would overcome their fear of it. So I try to say in the book that your fear of death, which is inevitable, we all fear it, I don't care who you are, is actually, if you don't confront it, it's actually the source of all of your other anxieties and fears in life. If you're not confronting the one reality that no one can deny that is facing you either tomorrow or in 10 years or in 50 years, then you're, you're going to cause all kinds of other problems, psychological issues, which is you're going to have this sort of latent anxiety. So your anxiety about my career in five years or your anxiety about a relationship or your anxiety about whether people like you is actually a little parcel of your own, a chunk of your own fear of death that you're trying to repress and run away from. And the power that you have is to confront this, the worst thing that can happen to you, deal with it, think about it, come to terms with it, realize that it's going to happen. You can kind of get over that fear and it can make you appreciate the moments of life that you have, right? So if you're aware that you could die tomorrow, suddenly the world around you has a different color, a different vividness. That, that woman that I live with, I might not see her tomorrow. Well, that changes how you look at her. Those birds that I'm hearing, those trees, the sun shining, they may be gone for me. It, it gives you an appreciation that's extremely powerful, very intense. It's actually the subject of my next book that I, we can talk about later. Oh. But, so it's like a visceral feeling. It can, it can lead to incredible power. Right? I wrote about it. And I talked about that visceral thing about trying to make death kind of real, mm. but still writing it, it's an intellectual abstract experience. And then I had it, you know, and the, it was a near death experience because if I hadn't gone to the hospital that quickly, I was driving my car at the time, I wouldn't be here talking to you. And I was in a coma uh, for probably half an hour or so. And then they had to operate on me and half my brain was gone and they managed to get to, okay, so the damage was very small. But anyway, um, that feeling, I've come out of it. I'm no longer afraid of death. I can honestly say it's, it's there in my body. I can feel it now. I can feel that moment that happened to me, the kind of loss of consciousness that occurred. I can feel what, that sensation in my bones. I feel it now. And it means I'm not afraid of dying anymore. It's a very powerful sensation to have. So it went from being this kind of intellectual thing to being something very, very real for me. When you kind of came out of this, did it almost feel like, oh, quickly, can I do some updates to the last chapter of the book? Or was there anything major different? Or do you actually, no, it's no, because no, again, it, six years. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty accurate. You know, I really wouldn't change anything. In the book, I studied people who had near-death experiences and, and the effect on them. So the only thing that I could have added was some of those physical sensations that I now really experienced. But I don't think that's, that's important. The idea, the concept 
is what is, is most important, which is overcoming that fear will radically alter your life. It'll open your mind up to other things beyond the banal day-to-day -day life that you have, like larger questions, larger spiritual questions, if you will. That's why it's the 18th chapter, the final chapter. It's probably the single most important thing you can do for yourself. It's also what I wrote about in the 50th law. It was the last chapter in the 50th law. So those two are kind of are kind of related. I, I love the 50th law. Absolutely love it. I know it's, it's one of your, as your books go, it's one of your shorter ones. Is that why you like it? I don't know, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in this, the phase of my writing career where I, I definitely can't put out a huge book. A publisher told me no one's that interested in what you've got to say. So I think it's awesome. People are definitely interested in what you've got to say and reading through these huge books that you can dig into that level of mastery and go deeper than these sort of like 200 page books that that um, maybe don't take quite so long to write. It's interesting what you're saying about, you know, you don't know who Adam Lewis Walker is and the mask we will have. When I was coming into this interview, I'm very conscious about signals I'm giving off or I'm just thinking, or am I conscious? So that's why like, at the start of the interview, I was very anxious about your thoughts on my book. So I'm glad we got that out of the way. If you haven't read that anyone, I do feature Robert's philosophies in a smaller section from our first interview. And as he says, his stamp is over that book. And I, you know, <laughs> It's definitely, definitely a big I said, influence. I said writing. fingerprints. Stamp is <laughs> too strong. It's just little, little tiny fingerprints. Yeah, no, I'm, gl I'm glad. <laughs> I mean I that, that in the kindest way. I mean that in the kindest I way. I take that as a compliment. Definitely, it was it. Yeah. Definitely intentional as well. We're kind of going to go all the way back to the start and the law number one of irras irrationality. Talk to us about the emotional attachment to decision making. Obviously, I can see why you put it at number one. Well, it's, it's obviously, we're seeing a lot of it nowadays. Uh, I kind of, we have a pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, but we're also seeing a pandemic of irrationality. And I, I begin that as the first chapter because I think it's the single most universal quality of humans and our nature and how we evolved from that, you know, primate ancestor millions of years ago. And so I'm trying to bring the point to you, the listener, to the reader, that you are not a rational person. You think you walk around and you go, when I make, when I buy a product, I, I, I'm trying to decide rationally what, which one I prefer. When I choose a person to live with, a maid or whomever, I'm, I'm being rational. When I decide about which career to pass, I'm, I'm pretty much being rational. No, that's not the truth. You're lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself. You are essentially an irrational creature. And I want to pound that into your brain so you can finally get over that arrogance and face the fact that you are largely governed by your emotions. Emotions govern 95% of your decision-making process. And only when you come to terms like that, only when you can get down on your hands and knees and admit that fact that you are an irrational being, can you begin to be, start to become rational. Now, why do I say that? Or first of all, if you understand the physiology of the, of the body and how the brain is, emotions are much more powerful than the thinking process. Emotions come from primitive parts of the brain, the limbic system, the, the forebrain. You know, um, lizards have a, have a fear reaction. It's very, you know, we all talk about the lizard brain. It's part of the limbic system. So these emotions, when you're feeling fear or anxiety or excitement, they release hormones into your bloodstream and electrical impulses that are really strong and really powerful. They're created so that they'll help you in a fight or flight situation to save your life. 
thinking part of your brain, the neocortex, came much later and is much smaller and is much less powerful. They're little electrical impulses, but they're not nearly as strong. So as things released in your bloodstream from emotions. So you're walking around and you're thinking that you make a decision based on that little neocortex, but you don't realize that fears, anxieties, um, hatred, anger are actually infecting those decisions because you can't see them. The other thing about emotions is they're not connected to the part of our brain that has language. So when you feel anger, you don't know how to, to talk about it. You don't know where it comes from because it's not connected to that part of the brain making you can process these things rationally. So you don't really know why you're angry. You don't really know why you're excited. You don't really know why you're attracted to that person or repelled by that person. These are processes that are unconscious. And so you're walking around in your life and you're making decisions that are essentially based on these emotional reactions to things, right? You've decided to take a career and probably your decision to follow a career path you think is, is based on, 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 I'm sorry, my cat, on things that, <laughs> on things that you need, right? Or, or, or something that's going to bring you a lot of money or success or whatever. But it's also probably based on peer pressure on what other people are doing in the world, about fears that you have on influences from your mother and your father. I had a weird one when I was growing up. I had the emotional response that actively just turned my back on jobs that I thought paid well because I felt I had issues with if you earn a lot of money, you know, you've done something shady to do that, get that. Right, or, right. Uh, so I just right. like, oh, how much, that, that earns that much? No, I'm not interested in that job. <laughs> right. It's weird. That's, that, that's, that's a classic example, you know. But also, I, I talk in the book, I have a scenario that's, that I thought was very interesting when I read it in somebody else's book. There's, it's a story of a young man who throughout his life in his 20s, etc., he was always breaking up relationships with women. It was this pattern. And he would always justify it by saying, she wasn't right for me. She, she didn't appreciate me. She didn't do enough for me. We're not on the same wavelength, et cetera. He'd be the one to break it off. And the, the guy who was analyzing him, the psychiatrist, discovered that in his childhood, he had a mother who didn't really, who was kind of abandoning him, who didn't give him much care and attention. And he experienced that as abandonment, as if she were abandoning her child. And it created incredible fear and panic. So his whole life was to avoid the sensation of being abandoned by a woman. He would be the one abandoning first. He would be the one breaking off the relationship. He had no conscious access to this. He was spending his life in misery, constantly doing these things without understanding where it came from. And I'm trying to tell you, the same thing is happening with you in your life right now. You're making decisions that are actually counterproductive. You don't know where they're coming from. They're not rational. So I'm trying to take you through the process here and show you that this is what's infecting your, your dreams, your desires, your strategies in life. They're subtly infected with emotions and desires and wishes. And if you can only just stop thinking that you're rational and come to terms with that, then you can begin to become aware. You can look back on your life at your failures and mistakes that you've made, which you usually blame other people for. And you can start to see the, the things that you did about them. And you can kind of change that process. You can see other things. You can look at the decisions you've made and the strategies you've used and analyze them and see 
how much emotions were involved. You can stop yourself in the moment and go, why am I angry? Why am I frustrated? I feel like I'm saying it's that because of that person or this person, but really you don't know. It could come from something else. So instead of just reacting on your anger, you can sit there and analyze it. And in analyzing where it comes from, generally the emotion goes down, it gets less and less intense, and that gives you the power to deal with it. So this is the process you have to go through. Rationality is a way to connect yourself to reality. And I'm trying to say, you are not connected to reality. You are dealing with people and you're seeing them as projections of your own emotions. You're seeing people as you wish that they are, not they really are, right? If you could somehow see people as they really are, you would start to deal with them on a different level. You would start being more rational in your social interaction. So rationality is a way to connect to the reality of the world, people, your career, yourself, the world at large. And with that connection to reality, you will make better decisions in life and you will be a lot happier. And what I like about all the, the laws is that they are laws of human nature, like you mentioned we're all emotional and it's just about being aware of, you know, certain aspects and your, your biases and how emotional you are and, and dealing with it and dealing with the reality. I've heard you talk about before about your biases and being aware of them. So I, I wanted to, to get your thoughts on biases. How can people maybe discover their biases or, cause we've all got them. Well, you know, you begin a book or a project, you have ideas and opinions that come from your experience, that come from your parents, from, from could even be genetic, right? And so I begin a book on human nature and I tend to have a slightly negative inclination, I have to admit. I tend to see, as you probably know, if you've read the 48 Laws of Power, I tend to see the darker side in human nature. Yeah, there and was I definitely admit, one or two of the laws where I was like, oh, and it's like, yeah, God, <laughs> I don't want to know about that, God. <laughs> you know, I, I definitely try and like, oh, it's all, it's all okay. But yeah, <laughs> people, well, people well, don't want to know the truth, do they? In a lot of scenarios. And I, I definitely felt a bit, one, a bit of that to one or two of your laws. <laughs> well, so, you know, me, I have an inclination to kind of emphasize more the dark side of human nature. And, and if you're writing a book, you don't want to have all of these biases. So <clears throat> I force myself to read books that I don't agree with that I don't like because they're too, they're too Pollyannish about human nature, like Steven Pinker's book, um, Our Better Nature, or Enlightenment Now, books that I hate that are so much against my spirit, but I force myself to read them because maybe they will help me overcome some biases that I have so I can see it, see them in, in but the, the key is I'm aware that I have this bias. There, there are things that, that we're prone to, ways we're prone to think that we're not even aware of. So probably the most powerful one of all is the confirmation bias. So you have an opinion about politics or business or people, you will tend to look for evidence that will confirm what you already think. And you will tend to neglect evidence that will contradict <clears throat> what you already think. That's your confirmation bias, <clears throat> excuse me. And it's extremely powerful. And we see it now, it's the source of so much irrationality. So I'm not someone who believes in conspiracy theories. I have a very skeptical approach to people who come with conspiracy theories. They're not, there have been conspiracies in the past. I don't deny it. And they have, and there, there have been some and some of them 
are definitely, we can see them in history. But in general, um, there, there's based on evidence that people select what they want to see. They select a narrow slice of what's really going on and they blow that up into something much larger, right? And so when they look for evidence, they only look for that little part that shows them what they already believe. And we see that now with people who are coronavirus deniers. They hone in on those few facts, on those few little things that they can now blow up and prove what they already want yeah, to just believe. Yeah, just find that one thing, right. even though the rest, <laughs> the rest of the evidence, yeah. Right, okay. But related to that is probably the most powerful bias of them all, which is cognitive dissonance. And you'll notice, I notice it in myself, and it's extremely human. So I'm not trying to pretend that I'm somehow superior. And what cognitive dissonance means is, if you have an opinion about something, and it's obviously tied to your emotions or whatever, and then evidence comes in that what you believe isn't true, you won't want to believe this new evidence because it makes you feel like your first opinion was wrong, that you were stupid, that somehow you evaluated the situation wrongly, that you made a bad choice. And we humans never want to admit that we are wrong. We never want to admit that we were stupid or irrational. So instead of seeing this new evidence that shows us that we were wrong, we will tend to react the opposite and think that we're more right than ever. And we'll get emotional and we'll find facts or things that will make it clear that we were actually very right, right? So people don't want to admit anything that will then kind of make them doubt that their own sanity, doubt their own rationality. So, and then the other bias that to me is very powerful in the world is the conviction bias. We think that if someone is angry, that they've got very powerful language. If they're on nightly news and they're ranting about this or that, and they're very angry and very vehement, that somehow they must be sincere and somehow what they say must be true because the louder their voice, it's hard for us to imagine that they could be deceiving us. It gives us the feeling that they are, that they're sincere, they're full of conviction. And I'm trying to tell you, the more emotional, the louder people are in trying to impress you with their ideas, the more likely they are actually trying to deceive you and even deceive themselves. And you need to be doubly wary of people like that. And one of the laws I thought was very interesting is law number five, law of, can you say it? <laughs> Greek <laughs> being greedy <laughs> covetousness covetousness there we go i thought it was interesting you, you know where you talked about presence and absence for someone who's listening to this what do you mean by that well well it's the grass is greener syndrome which we which is extremely human i noticed it um i happen to be a basketball fan all the players that are not on your team suddenly seem like that's exactly what you need they're so much better right because they, they're not on your team. You, you think that they're, they could suddenly turn your team into a championship contender. And I'm going, this is extremely weird, extremely human, how you always overvalue what you don't have. So you're always thinking that other people have something better than you, that if only you could live in that neighborhood instead of this neighborhood, your life would be so much better. Yeah. If only you could find that woman instead of the woman that you're with, you'd be so much happier. If only you had this career instead of that one or this boss, you know, it's extremely human. And it means that we're, we covet, we desire the things that are not, that we don't have, right? We overvalue them. We think that there's something greater about it. So what's near us is familiar 
it has to do with habits and we kind of don't appreciate it very much. But what we don't have seems like this alluring fantasy. Wow, if I could only have that person or that job, everything would be so wonderful because it's not immediately there. What's immediately in front of us is too familiar, it's too boring, it's too banal. But what's out there is mysterious and has all kinds of potential possibilities and can be wonderful and change our lives. So I'm trying to show you this process that's extremely natural to humans. And in fact, it's the basis of all marketing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, you're trying to make people desire what they don't have and give it this allure of something mysterious. So they'll go out and spend their hard-earned money on that product. Do what I call amor fati, which I've discussed in several of my books, which basically means love of fate, which means you have to love what you have. You have to love what, right, what happens to you, what's nearest to you in life, and appreciate it, and appreciate the fact that everything that happens to you is more or less for a reason, and that you can transform something negative, like a near-death experience, into something extremely powerful and life-affirming. So don't always be looking for something outside of yourself, but find what's near to you and find out what you can appreciate and the value you can get out from your immediate experience. In the current situation in the world, with all that's been going on with the virus and the world seeming to change rapidly in a short period, and you touched on one or two of the laws that you've really seen in effect, like what law do you think from the book that is really playing out in this current scenario? And for, for maybe people who've read your book or people who are listening to this show, what law do you think would really help people kind of get a handle on this and, and get kind of a, a rational view or deal with it? Because I know a lot of people are struggling mentally with what's happened and, and the unknown of what, what's going to come. Well, um, you know, obviously the chapter on rationality is the most important one. So the problem with something like the coronavirus is that it's hidden. It, we, don't, we can't see it. Yeah. We don't know anything about it. We don't know where it comes from. We go to the supermarket. We don't know who has it. We don't really know what will happen to the body during it. We, we understand it's pretty bad and we read stories, but we don't really, really totally understand how horrifying yeah. it truly can be. I feel, I feel like as well, I'm touched on what, when we talked about that death denial, there definitely seems a huge proportion of people who just assume that if they get it, they're going to be fine when right. we've got no, we've got, we don't know. And there's obviously like young, healthy people. There's like throughout the whole world and spectrum, there's all sorts of people that, you know, in some ways take it worse than other people. And we've, we've got real no way of knowing. But the other thing is uh, once you do get it, um, we now know that you can have lifelong problems, but the mm. problems can linger for months or maybe even years later, respiratory issues and things like that, that it really compromises the immune system. When, when we humans deal with something uncertain that's in the air that we can't see, we go a little bit insane. We go nuts. It's very hard for humans to deal with uncertainty with something that we can't see. And I've studied plagues before in history, like the Great Plague that hit London in the 1640s, 1650s. I can't remember the exact year. And it's a similar kind of madness. Of course, obviously, we know more now with science where things come from. So it's a little easier. But still, the fact that you don't know where death is coming from, it could be your neighbor, it could be somebody out there, you don't know whether it's safe to do this or that, plays a, a terrible trick on the human brain and creates a kind of madness. So you have to, you have to be aware of that. You have to try and counteract that. You have to deal with the realities around you. 
first of all, you can't be in denial about this. You have to understand this is very real. It's definitely a threat. But you have to understand where the threat is and how being in your home and, and taking certain practices, you are going to be safe. You can try to find ways to get lower the fear levels and the anxieties and understand that in six months or a year, this will be gone. But the problem is when you feel a lot of fear, it tends to become a habit. And I talked about this in the 50s law as well. If you've been conditioned to feel fear when you're a child, you're going to be carrying those fears with you throughout your adult life. And they're going to be obstructing you, in, you know, in all, in, throughout your whole life. Well, if we spend six months, eight months feeling anxious, fearful, you know, not, not wanting to do things, worried about our career, worried about the future, when it's over, you're going to be carrying that with you for months and years later. You've been conditioned physically to feel that fear. Those hormones have been released in your body and they stay there and they're going to stay there for months and years later. And you're going to find yourself two years after this whole thing is over being caught overly cautious about your career, about the people around you, et cetera, right? Yeah. And so you have to be dealing with that now that doesn't affect you so that you know that, you know, you don't, you want to be able to come out of this in six months or eight months with your mind intact and ready to attack the world and ready to do something bold and interesting and still take risks. You have to take risks in life in order to succeed. And so if this, people who grew up during the Great Depression in the United States, and I know my parents did, they carried that with them their entire lives. They were so fearful about money, even when they didn't have to be, when they were in their 50s and 60s, they were pinching pennies when it was ridiculous because they had grown up with such, and it's understandable, with such fears of poverty. Yeah. In that period, they never got over it. That's going to be happening to you if you're not careful. So that law is extremely important. You know? Yeah. Well, I was just, I mean, it sounds like really tying into, in some ways, your law 17 generational mitopia. And does it, you feel like there's going to be, you know, that certain generational grouper. I mean, it's affecting everyone that if that, that right sort of age, that's going to have that effect kind of the sort of things that the downfalls of some of the pitfalls of this. Yes. Well, <clears throat> I know from people who are millennials who've talked to me <clears throat> They're definitely, definitely at risk for this. I mean, it's understandable and I'm not, and I'm not judging them because mm -hmm. it would happen to me if I grew up in that generation. But if you look at it, people who are millennials who were born, let's say around 1990 or in the late 80s or in the, in the 90s, they had to deal with 2001, 9-11 here in the United States, if you're in the States. Yeah. And they had to deal with the crash of 08, which is at a critical moment when many of them were just beginning to enter the job market and the whole bottom fell out of the world. And many of them became very mistrustful about government and about Wall Street and about politics, understandably so. And then they have this in 2020, you know, um, so they've had to deal with three major crises, you know, and in my generation, you know, I had maybe the Vietnam War, but I was too young for that. And then maybe had Watergate, these are things that are nothing compared to what millennials have had to put up with. Yeah. And so they're going to, that generation is going to be carrying that fear with them for a long, long time. They're going to be extremely distrustful of government, of people in power, and understandably so because they've been let down. They're going to want to have career paths that are very safe and secure where they're sure to get money here. They're going to be less 
uh, open to taking risks, you know, because they feel they have a lot more to lose, etc. They're going their politics, and it's been shown, are going to shift probably more to the left eventually because they're not going to want. They don't believe in the whole spirit of being an individual and relying on yourself because that was kind of blown apart by 08 and by what's happening to the economy now. It's going to have a major impact on how people look at the world. And then there's Generation Z, who's also going to be deeply affected by this, but probably in a different way. So I'm talking in that book that you are part of what's called a cohort, a generation, usually around 20, 22 years. And you'll, you'll either be at one end of the cohort or the other end or right smack in the middle. And you're not aware of it, but it changes how you look at the world. It gives you a zeitgeist. It makes it changes your sense of humor. It changes your values, your ideas, how you look at people, how you look at risk, and how you look at change. And I'm trying to show you need to be aware of these factors. You need to be aware of the fact that your generation is warping and affecting and altering how you view the world itself. You touched it with conspiracy theorists. I want to know your thoughts on, like you say, the virus is definitely happening, but those who scared of government or very wary of anything that comes out officially, regardless from different countries and different sources. And so they're almost going out of their way to go against advice, whether it's face mask or just, you know, mass protests um, and just getting together and just almost doing the opposite. And I know you've got a law on conformity and this, it feels like some people in, in some ways are just want to just do the opposite, regardless of what's being shown in, to them. I mean, what are your thoughts around that when you see um, these scenarios of these individuals? Well, it's understandable, you know, I can understand where it comes from, but it's, it's highly irrational. Um, so, you know, we started talking about rationality before and about reality. And it's, it's the, what makes us human is that we have language and we have reasoning powers of what separates us from animals, right? And so you need to connect yourself to what's really going on in the world, to what's really happening with this virus. Now, of course, we don't know 100% what is happening. And so sometimes the experts get it wrong. They're learning as well. This is how science advances. Science deals with something novel. They come up with a theory. Evidence comes in that shows that their theory was a little bit wrong. They tweak it and they get closer and closer to something real. So yes, experts can be wrong and they have been wrong about this. But generally they are right. They're the ones who understand how viruses work epidemiologists know a lot better than me or a businessman knows about what's going on with something like a virus. It's not something that's human, that's, that's alive. Viruses are simply a numbers game. They simply operate by the more bodies they can inhabit, the more they can spread. And it's a sort of an exponential thing. So that right now, and this is very hard for the human brain to, to, um, to gauge, to understand things that are exponential. So that we look at the statistics now and we see, oh, only 100 people have the coronavirus in my area. But you don't understand that that 100 will explode into 5,000, 10,000 if you're not careful because they will spread it massively. I thought that is something that's funny, like when they sort of lock things down and that the idea is so it doesn't spread and nothing much happens. And then people honestly seem to be like, oh, nothing really happened. Oh, there's no point. We, we can just go for it now. And that's kind of seemed, and then obviously everything shoots up and they're like, oh, that's strange. <laughs> it just seemed madness. Well, but, but you know, but, but Europeans didn't have this problem. I know a lot of people in France 
and in Italy, they took it very seriously. And look at where they are right now compared to us. Mm. People are going out to cafes in, in, in Milan. They're having their espresso. They're going to restaurants. Soccer teams are going to be, football teams are going to be playing again. Their life is resuming. And look at us. Mm. Look at where we are. Just open your eyes for a second. And why is that happening? Why is that happening? It's because there they understood the signs. They were not stupid. They were not irrational. They were not fools. They understood. They may have been upset. And you know how French people are. French people don't want to be cooped up in their apartment. <laughs> they hated it. And they, and they hated their president. Yeah, they got locked down hard as well, didn't they? Blimey. But they did it. They did it. And look where they're at now. And look where we're at. I think so what, this what, is... Yeah, what showed me, I mean, obviously America is so huge. And it really did feel like divided states or like, you know, 50 little countries with, you know, their own, you know, it, the governor making up their own rules. And it felt like the virus was maybe just going to jump from state to state as some of them locked down, some didn't. And some took it seriously, some didn't. And obviously people are crossing state lines. <sighs> well... So look, the reality is that this is a virus that is very powerful, has very powerful effects, and it spreads in a certain way. We're learning more and more about it. It's very real. And I know it's very painful to have the, your careers locked down, to be stuck in your apartment, to not be able to work. But you have to deal with the pain first. You have to get rid of it in four or five months, and then the economy will come back quicker and quicker. So if you think that everything has to be easy in life, then you're never going to be able to solve any problem. You have to deal with the pain. You have to deal with some sacrifice. Stop whining like little bitches. You know? <laughs> Our ancestors in World War II, they had a much worse sacrifice that they had to go through you know, in their day-to-day -day life. Everything was rationed. You know, I saw a, a funny cartoon, and, yeah, and the generation thing, like you know, go to war and my sacrifice. And then this generation is like, I stayed home. That's my sacrifice. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know. I know that there's anxiety about your career, and it's real, and it's terrible, and I understand that. But it's the only way out of it. If there was an easy solution, then we would have it. But you know, yeah. roasted turkeys don't fall into our mouths from the sky. We actually have to go hunt. We actually have to farm. We actually have to do things. To get anything in life requires pain and sacrifice. The everyday things that people took for granted before, at least for a while after this, they won't take them for granted so, more, so much and, you know, really hopefully appreciate them. Like a little taster of that near-death experience, but not quite, hopefully. Yeah, and, and, and as you said earlier, fear and anxiety and irrationality have a viral effect. So when it starts to spread in a group, it gets worse and worse and worse, you know? So people see things on the internet or they see things on Facebook and it starts sort of, you know, expanding their fears and their worries about things. You know, I know I've posted on Facebook some things about the coronavirus and then out of the woodwork comes all these people saying, that's not true. It's a conspiracy. It's not happening. These numbers are wildly inflated. And where is this coming from? And then I click on their sources, on their links, and I see this whole netherworld, these little these little ecospheres, ecosystems of fear and conspiracy theories, et cetera, just kind of feeding itself. So this, is, this has a viral conformity effect. It can be very powerful and very dangerous. Yeah. I feel like a positivity bias I've got. I'm aware of that slightly. I want to just wrap this up almost like the opportunity in crisis. I saw you did a visit video recently, or I, or I saw it recently, about you know, the, the opportunities from this and kind of the, we kind of touched on like looking for the other side and yes it's painful currently i mean what are your thoughts around that 
Well, I said earlier, amor fati. What happens to you? You can do one of two things. You can complain and whine and blame other people and go wah, 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 in which case nothing gets better and you get more miserable and resentful and bitter. Or you can say, this happened for a reason. I'm going to make something good out of it. The bad thing is actually a good thing. In the 50th law, I call it turning shit into sugar, which is sort of a hustler's expression. So my coming this close to dying, which I tell you is not a great thing. I don't, I don't want to die. I'm happy to be alive. Has, is actually the most positive experience I could have had. It's taught me so many things about myself. It's taught me about my limitations. It's taught me patience. You don't have any idea what real patience is like when you can't even move your left hand for months and months. You can't move your pinky, so you can't tie your shoes or button your shirt. You learn what patience really is in those situations. So the bad things that happen to you have a chance for you to transform yourself and strengthen yourself. So just imagine if in this time when you're locked down and you're a bit worried, instead of complaining, et cetera, like that, why don't you turn this into a moment where you're going to transform yourself into the most powerful, strong, tough-minded individual out there in the world. How are you going to do that? Well, first of all, it's good to be alone. If you can't be alone in this world, if you can't spend several, three or four hours alone with your own thoughts, with, with you know, your own, just yourself, um, then you're going to have a problem throughout your life. You're never going to be able to write anything. You're never going to be able to think for yourself. You're never going to be able to really plan. You're going to constantly be social media, other people, blah, blah, blah. I call it tactical hell. You never be able to raise your mind out of the immediate moment and think of the larger picture. So learning to be alone, learning to be, you know, in confinement is a positive thing because it's going to develop the habit where you're not afraid three years from now to close the door, to go off into the mountains for several days and think about your life and where you are. So develop the goddamn habit of being okay with being alone. Second of all, you're always reaching when you're bored for entertainment. You're reaching for video games, for online porn, I'm sorry to say, for movies or for whatever you can do to get, you know, to distract you. And now you don't really have, I mean, you have some of it, but you don't have the usual ways of distracting yourself. Well, now for the first time in your life, you can confront this boredom and develop some discipline, a lifelong skill. What's the best way to occupy your mind to distract it, the healthiest way is to read books. Finally develop the habit, if you haven't already, of really enjoying the process of reading books. And I'm not saying that selfishly because I depend <laughs> on you buying my books to pay so my mortgage, et cetera. A couple of writers here, a little bit biased on that, but yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> So when you read a book, you're opening your mind to other experiences. You're enriching your own imagination, your own thought process, you know? Also, um, you know, being in your apartment in, in your, is, is kind of unhealthy and, you know, you need to exercise, you need to move your body, you need to, to keep your blood flowing, etc. If you're not someone who's addicted to exercise, this is the time to get that addiction. I'm personally addicted. If I can't, well, I miss one day, I'm the most miserable person out there i'm so depressed yeah i think that for it, me as well that's the quickest decline in, in mental health more than anything if i don't do it it's the same sort of thing 
there's, there's no there's no law saying you can't go running or, or bicycling. I have a special bicycle I use, and suddenly everybody in the world is bicycling because it's like the easiest way to get that exercise. So develop, you know, that kind of habit, and then stop being so anxious about the present and learn to lift your mind out of the present moment and do what I said earlier. Okay, this will be over in six months, maybe sooner, maybe later. And you're going to be left now in a different world. It's like a meteor hit Earth, and suddenly we're in a, facing a different landscape, all right? And we don't like change, and it makes us fearful. Well, now sort of see, instead of worrying about that, look about where you want to be. Maybe you've been following a career path that isn't exactly what you wanted in life. It hasn't really made you feel happy. It hasn't made you feel fulfilled. Who are you? What is it that you really want in life? What is that career? What is that direction that you could take that will actually be what you were meant to take and that will engage with you emotionally and make you feel like you're actually connected to something deep within as opposed to just collecting a paycheck? So use this moment, instead of being afraid of what it's gonna be like in four or five months, of thinking of the larger picture of where you wanna be in five years. And if you're a business person, an entrepreneur, where, what, is, what is the world gonna be like when we emerge? What kind of businesses, what kind of things are people gonna be gravitating towards, right, in this new environment? Think ahead, get your brain out of the moment and think of the larger picture, think of what's going on in the world. And finally, toughen yourself up. Use this moment to toughen yourself up and to say, the worst things that can happen to me are actually the best things that can happen. I'm going to develop discipline. I'm going to deal with my fears. I'm going to deal with my fear of mortality. I'm going to deal with the fact that I'm not a disciplined person. And I'm going to emerge this from this thing with greater habits, with more sense of who I am because I've been alone with my thoughts. I've maybe created a journal where in which I can get to understand myself better. I'm going to emerge from this stronger and tougher than ever. That's where you want to be. That's what this opportunity is for. When the worst things happen to you, there's so much learning that can go on. You cannot let this drop by. So when good things happen to you, when you have success, that is the most dangerous moment of all because you let down your guard and you think, wow, these great sunny days are just going to continue forever. And that's when you get soft inside and weak. But when bad things happen, that's the best thing that can happen to you. It's going to make you appreciate what you really want, what really matters in life. And it's going to make you toughen yourself up and gain some self-control and some self-mastery. So don't let these moments go by, you know, without working on yourself in some way, because they're an incredible opportunity for power. Definitely. Talk about bad things happening and obviously your stroke and your, I want to, you know, let you get back to your writing because I know you've got a writing session coming up. Um, did that affect what your next book was? Or, and can you give us a little teaser trailer of whether you've got a working title or anything about the, the next book? And I obviously, I don't want to just well, jump to the next, the next, the next. And be, I want to be present, but I just, uh, I'm very curious. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a little bit hard to describe, but somehow I'll try my best. Uh, basically, I touched upon it in that chapter in the 50th law that I mentioned and in 18th chapter of the last book. I, the book is tentatively titled The Law of the Sublime. And the sublime, I have a particular definition of it. So basically, my idea is that we humans live in a circle. If you can just visualize a circle, and that circle represents a kind of limit. And in, within that circle, we, our minds live we, every day. We inhabit it. And it's certain codes of behavior, 
certain ways we're expected to think, certain um, ideas and patterns and ways of doing things that are socially acceptable, certain opinions and certain forms of political correctness or whatever it is that we're all supposed to abide by, certain ideas about what life is and what, who I am, et cetera. And by our nature as human beings, we don't like limits. On the one hand, we like to control things, but on the other hand, we have an adventurous spirit. The moment somebody puts up a limit, we wanna look and see what's beyond the door. We wanna see what's possibly out there. So if you see that circle, what's just outside that circle is what I call the sublime. And of course, literally what's just outside that circle is death itself. So the sublime is, that's the ultimate limit in our life, right? So it, it's like going up, having a sublime experience is going up to the limit and opening the door and seeing what lies on the other side. So it means confronting these limits and expanding your mind, expanding your thought process about who you are and about what you can achieve and seeing that you're creating your own limits. It's about understanding who other people are and getting inside their world instead of inside your own world and experiencing their reality. And it's mind blowing if you can do that, if you can develop true, true empathy, it's almost like telepathy. If I could suddenly know what Adam Lewis Walker is thinking right now, it would be a very, you know, it would alter me in some deep way. It would be very powerful. You have that ability, understanding what's really going on. Understanding, for instance, that we are on this incredibly tiny little planet in this vast universe that's infinite space and infinite time, which is a concept that is really impossible for us to truly understand. And that we might be alone in this universe and that the whole chain of life that led up to this moment is extremely improbable. This link of incredibly improbable things. And now here you and I are talking. If you understand that, that like, whoa, <laughs> this moment that I'm alive, that I'm sitting here 100,000 years ago, we didn't even have language. We were basically hunter gatherers and, you know, we were living in a, in a much different world. And here I am now with this technology it's insane it's yeah. absolutely insane i want to open your mind to the insanity to the amazement of what the world is really like because when you open and you go a little bit beyond that circle it like alters how you think about yourself about being alive about other people about politics about animals etc yeah i'm so sold. That's, that's the book <laughs> i do and i'm already excited to start thinking about the examples you're going to pull from history and, and from current times to illustrate your points. I'm already thinking, oh, I like the sound of that. Well, Robert, it's been an absolute pleasure today. So, thank you so much for speaking. And I'm sure thank I'll speak you. to you, if not before, you know, down the line when this next book comes out. But obviously, you're always welcome. Yeah, well, ho hopefully less than five years. You know, <laughs> it'll book will be out in probably about three years. So maybe we can do it in three years. Time. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Sounds good. Thank no you worries. so much. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast. Live limitless. If you like the podcast, you will love the book. The book is Awaken Your Alpha, Thousand Tactics to Thrive, and it's available on Amazon. This is what my favorite author, Robert Greene, had to say about the book. I liked your book a lot. I like the mix of, of past and present that you brought in. I was very impressed. I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed it. It was, it was a good, it was entertaining. You know, and, and, I, and I actually learned it provoked some interesting thoughts for me. So it's a great book and, and you're only going to be going up.
This is what my favorite author, Robert Greene, best known for the 48 Laws of Power, had to say about my book. <laughs> 